On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about home buying, house buying, because the CMHC is putting new rules in place to make it a little more difficult to get mortgage insurance, which matters because if you're a first-time home buyer, mortgage insurance is almost certainly something you are going to have to, by law, get. Why are they doing this? Well, we're going to discuss that. We're also going to be talking about what should Canada do? What can Canada do? at this point about the two Michaels, one of the wives of one of the, we'll call them hostages in China is now saying Canada has to do something. But at this point, what do you do without looking like you're just completely caving into China? And we're going to talk about the hockey hall of fame and new rules, new possible rules in the baseball world. When the games come back at some time in the next few weeks, all coming up, stick around, enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Starting on July 1st, on Canada Day, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation is going to be tightening its rules for getting mortgage insurance. Now, this is going to be a big deal for a lot of people because most people, I think it's most people, pretty sure it's most people, require mortgage insurance. And tighter rules probably means owning a home, especially if you're trying to break into the market in the first place, could become more difficult. Well, we keep hearing that we're trying to make getting house house ownership easier for people. So why, if it's potentially going to make it more difficult, why do this? Well, there's a number of reasons, but one stands out according to the CMHC. It's a prediction that house prices are going to decline by as much as 18% over the next year. Almost a fifth, they are predicting, of the value of your home could go down within the next year. Is that right? Is that a good bet to be making that house prices are going to drop by that much? Tim Hudak is the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. He joins us now. Tim, thanks for doing this today. Sincerely appreciate it. Yeah, Scott, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, Before we dive into all the predictions and all the other details and everything else, just some background for people. Can you explain who is required to have mortgage, required? I mean, people can choose it, but who's required to have mortgage insurance? Yeah, I mean, basically, it captures a lot of first-time home buyers. So you, if you cannot make a a down payment of up to twenty percent of the home's value, then by uh, law in Canada, you're required to get insurance. The Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation you mentioned—they're a, a government agency. They have a good portion of the market, but there are other competitors like Genworth and uh, Canada Guarantee in the marketplace who will give you insurance on your mortgage. And the insurance basically makes sure that if you can't make payments that that mortgage uh, is insured by one of those providers. And, you know, when you mentioned 20%, uh, if the average price, I don't even, I didn't look it up right before we came on, but it's been dancing around the 500,000 mark in Hamilton for the last little while. You're talking about then having a hundred thousand dollars for a down payment. I'm guessing most people don't walk into their agent with that amount of money. So in other words, most people who are getting into the market, this is them. Yeah, it is particularly for first-time home buyers. If you've already owned a home, you've got a lot of equity in your home, you may not uh, need that insurance. But uh, we are talking, you know, primarily uh, first-time home buyers, maybe somebody doing a move-up home where they've got the kids, they need a bit more space, so they're upgrading their home purchase. There's no doubt. Uh, you mentioned Hamilton, Burlington. That's been a, a huge success story. We've seen nice increases. If you own a home there, tougher in the marketplace. But that's you know, shows a lot of people that are, finding the Hamilton Burlington area a a great place to buy a home to raise a family and get on with life and hopefully we'll see that continue. 
Is this, would I be reading correctly into this, that this is all about reducing the risk so lenders can feel more confident to give people money to buy homes? Well, what's been interesting here is while the, the government agency has decided to make the uh, mortgage insurance tougher to get, the private sector providers like Genworth and Canada Guarantee are not doing that. They feel that, uh, that they've got appropriate risk in the marketplace. They see a, more of an upside to investment uh, in real estate. Certainly our realtors that belong to the Real Estate Association Hamilton Burlington, you know, see a very bright future for real estate uh, in, uh, in their area. I think what we've seen, unfortunately, Scott, is, is that particular government agency has taken on a much more pessimistic uh, approach to the marketplace. Their predictions of housing prices that you talked about before the break are really on the extreme. I mean, just yesterday we saw the, the Conference Board of Canada with a, uh, a much more uh, mild uh, prediction than the CMHC. The Bank of Canada had a you know, much more moderate prediction uh, as well. So they're really an outlier. But you, you raise a good concern that, that we agree. I mean, I, I'm honored to represent Ontario's uh, 80,000 uh, realtors, including the hardworking ones in your listening audience. Uh, we feel that real estate is a strong investment. It pays off in the long run. You can't raise a family in a stock uh, or uh, a bond. Uh, and we think that government activities that are discouraging investment in real estate is actually going to hurt us. Right now, we need the government to support the economy, to support investment, to support the spinoffs that buying a home create, you know, jobs in the economy. We should be looking to help pull our economy on the road to recovery, not keeping it down in the post-COVID period. Well, it seems like there's a mixed message here because we've heard many times that governments and others are going to be doing things to try and make it more accessible for people to get into the housing market. And then you see this, that as my understanding is, it makes it more difficult to get into the housing market. Yeah, it does. I mean, and who does it hurt the most? It hurts, you know, young families who are starting out, you know, new Canadians, uh, entrepreneurs, you know, that, that millennial couple that, you know, did everything their parents told them to. They worked hard. They played by the rules. They got a good education. They got a job. Now they're married and want to start a family. That's where punishing. If you're rich, you, you come from a wealthy family, and mom and dad can give you, you know, $500,000 to buy a home. This is no skin off your nose. But for the type of people we should be helping, the aspiring middle class, those who want to climb up the ladder, this policy is actually going to hurt them. I do believe, though, Scott, I think there's a difference between where the elected officials are and where the CMHC bureaucrats are. I think the bureaucrats are on the wrong course. I, I do sense from our politicians at a national and provincial level, they want our economy to get back on track. They want to get people back to work. And we've got some ideas where real estate can help lead Ontario's economic and confidence recovery. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tim, I don't want to um, dismiss the concerns because I'm not an expert on this. That's why I've got you on here. Uh, but the the CEO of the CMHC said that what we've seen with COVID-19 is that we've exposed a lot of uh, market vulnerabilities, and that's why they're doing this. I'm looking at the prices, and I know that when we've gone through COVID over the last number of months, the number of sales have gone down, but the prices of homes have actually been going up. I'm I'm not necessarily seeing where the great weakness is that we need to make it more difficult because it seems the market is kind of strong. Yeah, your uh, your research is very strong there, Scott, and you sh- you should have somebody from the. Uh, Realtor Association Hamilton Burlington to give you the local numbers, but I can tell you province-wide that um, April was obviously very tough. Everybody was staying in their homes. There was very little activity. 
but uh, when we moved into May and June, we're seeing uh, more people moving back to the market as they become, you know, more more aware of what they can do to risk uh, to reduce the risk of COVID. Uh, but prices uh, pretty much held steady across uh, the province of Ontario. Yeah, there's no doubt that uh, the CMHC uh, CEO is is often an extreme in in their predictions. It's not matching what you're hearing from uh, from others. But you know, I, I actually think that um, real estate can help uh, get Ontario back on on track uh, economically, and I hope that our governments, provincially and federally, uh, will get on board. Like you, you know, Scott, when you buy a house, right? The the spinoffs are really incredible. Almost everybody when they buy a home, they're they immediately are. You're looking maybe at some new furniture, some some new appliances. There's going to be a rehab project uh, or two. You're certainly paying uh, moving expenses, cleaning. Like there's tons of spinoff activity from real estate. I mean, it'd be very difficult to imagine another purchase that causes more economic activity when it takes place. So we'll be pitching, you know, to the government of Ontario uh, that they should look at something like a land transfer tax holiday. You pay the land transfer tax when you buy a new home. You know, what if we waive that for a period of time? That may cause some more activity. That can help get more people back to work because of the spinoffs. And at a national level, you know, let's look at um, making that stress test more balanced, allowing people to get 30-year mortgages again where they pay off the interest over time. That's particularly helpful to people who are just getting their first home or aspiring middle class. I really do believe that the government wants to look at an area that can help get Ontario and Canada back on its feet post-COVID helping people purchase a home, that would be it. Yeah, and there's other things. It's not just the 20%. And and, I mean, maybe we're getting too much into inside baseball here with this stuff. But as I was reading this, one of the other things, the the, the stress test they're going to be putting on is that the percentage of your income that you are able to buy. So if you make 100,000, the house will have a certain value that you can go up to. That's going down a bit, which means that the value of a home that somebody getting into the market could buy will be less. Well, if we're not seeing the prices of the homes go down, we're only seeing them go up. And now we're saying, yeah, but your buying power is less. Again, this seems to fly in the face of logic to say, we keep talking about wanting people to be able to have this dream of home ownership. And we keep putting, and we've had governments take steps to try and do this. I think it was in Vancouver, wasn't it? Where they had rules about you know, foreign investors and things like that who could buy in specifically so people who could get into the market and now we're throwing more obstacles in front of them. Yeah, I, I, certainly now at a time where we have very high unemployment rates as a result of COVID, it, it is the worst time to try to slow down economic activity uh, even more. Uh, homeownership is an abiding Canadian dream. We recently polled uh, people in Ontario and, and found that you know, six out of 10 still feels a very, very solid, uh, sorry, eight out of 10 still feels a very, very solid uh, investment. Uh, for the long run. Look, uh, you've raised some good concerns what the CMHC is doing and making it harder to get a mortgage, but there are other options out there. And if That's a good question. Place, that's a good point. And I wanted to ask you, because there are options. So why would I go to the CMHC? Because that seems to be, for a lot of people, the default position. Why would I go to them now? Yeah, I, I, well, they've got a, a big name. So they've been the largest share of the market, but there are competitors out there. I mentioned uh, Genworth and the Canada Guarantee before the break. There are others. You should work with your realtor. Uh, who then can connect you with somebody in the mortgage uh, side to look at, at uh, your options. That's not the only option in the marketplace. And, and I do worry the CMHC has become a little bit too ideological, maybe politically motivated, instead of looking out for what's in the best interest of Ontarians as a whole. Last thing, because they are a government-funded or government-supported agency, is there an advantage to using them as opposed to the other ones? 
You know, not that I know of. I, again, I, I think I, I talk to a realtor when you're making this purchase. You can talk to a mortgage uh, expert. But uh, knowing folks who work for the uh, competing company as well as the CMHC, uh, they, you know, they're all legitimate. They're all very highly capitalized. And I know the uh, other major companies uh, believe that they're going to get a lot more customers as a result of this uh, unilateral action by the CMHC. It's uh, it's interesting. It's probably a little discouraging for some people who have been saving their pennies to try and, and hopefully not just pennies, uh, but to get into the housing market. Uh, Tim Hudak, CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. Thanks for taking the time today. Really appreciate it. You bet, Scott. Have a good evening. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This week, um, after Canada's bid for a UN Security Council seat was lost, the Prime Minister spoke out rather forcefully, at least compared to what he has been saying before, about China's handling of the two Michaels. You know who we're talking about, the two Canadians who are being detained on accusations of being spies in China. And whether or not the timing of these comments um, had anything to do with the fact that we're no longer politicking for that Security Council seat, I'll leave that for you to decide. That's not the point here. We are being stronger. Well, now the wife of Michael Kovrig has come out even stronger about ending this thing. Uh, She gave an interview with the CBC and said it was within the power of the Minister of Justice to end the extradition of the executive from Huawei, who this whole thing seems to be about. And, you know, if Canada would just not pursue this any further, then maybe her husband could come home. Is this a wise idea? Is there a way out of this mess? Stephen Ledrew is a former president of the Liberal Party of Canada. He's a longtime political commentator. We love having him on. It's been a little while, but we're glad to have him back. Stephen, how are you today? Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Good to hear you, Scott. Uh, this is a mess. There's no question about that reality. Um, is there any way, though, that we can end this, that we could somehow extricate ourselves from this without it looking like now it was a complete capitulation to China? Absolutely. And we should have done it earlier, and we can still do it now, because we've got a card that they want. It's the Huawei executive in Vancouver, which, by the way, is just it's a totally bizarre situation that she's still under house arrest, because it shows how, how ponderously slow our justice system is. She's been there since, what, last January or a year ago, January or February, uh, Scott, and there's still another trial scheduled for another year. Like, people, you know, murderers in Canada get out faster than this. <laughs> She's not even yeah. guilty of anything yet. Um, so our justice system, it shows that it's just, it just grinds to a halt, first of all. Secondly, the prime minister's always saying, well, you know, the rule of law prevails. I mean, what does the prime minister know? I mean, as we know, learned with SNC-Lavalin, he doesn't know what's appropriate in law. He's not trained at all with it or even respecting it. And... Yes, we have the rule of law in some cases in Canada, Scott, but the bottom line is that the final decision, after all these court hearings, still rests with the Prime Minister as to whether to extradite her or not. So I understand the Chinese when they're saying, well, it's political. Yes, it is political. And since it is political, and the, and the President of the United States, Scott, has said, well, I'd gladly you know, trade her for a good trade, uh, good trade deal, uh, he's made it political, too. So we should just buck up and have some sovereignty and, and stick with our citizens and do a trade. Send her back to China in exchange for those two Canadians who are being held unfairly. And, and, and I mean, some of, of the, uh, 
some of Jean Chrétien's former aides and uh, have said something along the same lines. Here's the comment that a lot, the, the position a lot of other people have taken though, and that would be, well, okay, if we do that though, if we make a prisoner exchange of some kind, do yep. we not then send the message that if you want something from Canada, just take one or two of our citizens hostage and then we'll do what you want and we'll make a deal with you. D does it not open the door to every despot or bad dangerous leader around the world to take advantage of us i you know you're absolutely right in that and that is the consideration every hostage taking whether it be between countries scott or whether it's you know a kidnapping of a of a student or a child and people say well we don't give uh, you know we don't give money we don't give in to hostages hostage uh, tactics and yet that's the right line to take and yet we still do it because it's what is necessary and uh in this case we are just being played by the United States, and yes, Trump would uh, huff and puff if we uh, gave her away, but uh, I think we should still do it. I mean, it's uh, the precedent, which is what you're referring to, Scott, and it's, uh, it's, it's not a great precedent, but it's better than the alternative. That's all I can say. And I don't think that uh, many countries are going to be scooping up Canadians around the world because um, we're notoriously cheap. We wouldn't pay that much. <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, uh, perhaps. I mean, I, I, I worry about that, though, and I really do, because mm -hmm. of the, the just valid. the idea that you, um, you know, I, I was taught in, I don't know, grade nine history or something about uh, the King Ethelred the Unready, who they kept coming back and attacking him, and he kept paying them off with gold, and then they would say, well, if we can get gold out of him this time, let's go attack him a second time, and then they kept coming back. Until he runs out of gold. Until he runs out of gold. And I just, I look at this and I go, so if we do it this time, how do we not do it the next time? And if we don't do it the next time, well, why wouldn't we do it the next time? I mean, these things are incredibly complicated. I, I just wonder if we've reached the point now where we've pushed this thing too far to be able to back out without looking like idiots. Well, I think that, um, I, you know, it, you, you bring up a very, very valid and constructive point. But I think that this should have been done earlier. I still think that uh, we could do it now. And it's a bad precedent. There's no question about it. But... Um, I don't think that even China, which is ruled by the Communist Party, is not going to, uh, well, first of all, they have far more money than we do, uh, as far as seizing other Canadian citizens. And they wouldn't, I don't think, continue on doing something like that because uh, of the world approbation. I mean, they simply can't do it. It's not like, uh, you know, tribes in the in, in the old Middle East, where they could do that and, and no one else would give a darn. Uh, the world would come raining down upon China or any other country that did that. So I think that there is still some rule of law and uh, rule of diplomacy in the world. And, uh, and uh, we can't look at precedents um, when we're trying to get these two gentlemen uh, free. And the other thing is, you know what, I understand why the Chinese are, are, are pissed off at, uh, at Canada. For holding that executive. I mean, I just think that, that what we're doing to her is a travesty. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Stephen, regardless, and I mean, I've, you know what my point of view is on this one. We can't forget these are real people involved. And I do wonder what happens if this ends badly. What if we don't do something and one or both of these guys come home dead or we find out they're being tortured or something? It, it really throws a wrench into the philosophical points you might want to take about what to do or what not to do. There are people here. 
You're absolutely right, Scott. And uh, if you look at the treatment uh, you just said, or, or if they come home and they've been uh, tortured, I think they've already been tortured. Uh, from what I understand, um, it's, uh, the conditions are, are terrible. Uh, it's not like you know, the Chinese citizen in Canada who is living in multi-million dollar mm-hmm. homes in Vancouver um, and having, you know, complete, aside from the fact that she can't leave Canada, I mean, she has complete freedom. And yes, she has a lot of money, um, but it's uh, Chinese government money, and, uh, and uh, she's living uh, a pretty neat life compared to these two guys over there. And so it's, um, it is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a bloody awful situation, and um, you know, we are going to be having more of those in the world. The world is not uh, the nice place it was uh, 20 or 30 years ago, and um, we're just, Canada's just going to have to grow up and realize that if it's going to uh, be a proper country in this world is going to have to take some decisions. And uh, we got that in, you know, taught to us in spades with, as you said, your first promo, uh, Scott, about the, uh, the turning down of the Security Council seat. It was a silly thing to be doing in the first place. Security Council I mean, means nothing anymore at the United Nations. It, it's a nice title, but it, it does nothing. It can't do anything. It has no power. And all we would be is uh, a shooting target between China and uh, the USSR and the United States. And, um, you know, we got our comeuppance when the Prime Minister went around giving away tens of millions of dollars to countries for their votes, uh, ended up short. And uh, now we're realizing, Canadians are starting to realize, not just uh, the government officials, Scott, but Canadians are starting to realize, that, you know, this is all baloney that Canada is back. I mean, Harper, I think, had a very constructive and respectable foreign policy when he was Prime Minister. The Liberals derided it, and, uh, and now they're getting their comeuppance on it. So, I mean, we've got to grow up. Canada can't go around in, in uh, short pants anymore. Uh, to your point about torture, by the way, his wife, Michael Covert's wife, uh, she was quoted saying, basically he's been confined to a single cell this entire time. He has not gone outside. He's not seen a tree or had fresh air to breathe for 560 days. Wow. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully... That's the extent of the bad treatment that he's getting. That not that that's great, but that you know better than what uh, what was that guy's name in North Korea that came home basically a uh, you know in a coma almost to the states and then ended up dying as and soon then, as he and got then home. He died. Absolutely. Right. Well, talk to anybody who has been in uh, who is who has um, uh, respected this shutdown over COVID and uh, who there's some small condominiums in, in apartments. In Hamilton and uh, and Toronto, where people have been shut in for ages, and it's still only like say sixty days, and they're going batty. So imagine yeah. what it'd be like yeah. to have over five hundred days. But your point again is, uh, it, it's really it is going to test Canada's backbone if we were to try and stand up to China, because we are really a little puppy that is nipping at the bully's heels, and we risk potentially economic we've we've tried so hard to grease the skids to make things better economically and everything else and all of a sudden if we decide to take a hard stance on this we risk doing a whole lot of damage on the flip side if we just completely give in and say well fine do whatever you want then we look like idiots in the restaurant as i say i this is such a complicated issue and i'm just not sure how we back out of it at this point it would have been way easier months and months ago i don't know how we do it now well it would have been way easier if we'd been smart at the very beginning because canadian officials and politicians knew 
that she was coming over. They knew that she was stopping down in Vancouver. They knew the United States was going to do what it did. And nobody had the guts or the courage to pick up a phone and speak to an official in China and say, do not, do not let her on that plane. I mean, that's what should have been done at the very beginning on that. But you can't, well, I mean, you, you, you go over these things in order to learn lessons for the next time. And you talk about, you know, China and its great power, Scott, and yes, it does. And we will never have the military power that China has, nor, nor do we want that. But we have a lot of power. China needs energy. If we had a government that would recognize that Canada has huge resources and can ship liquefied natural gas and oil to China, and if we get out of Alberta, across to B.C., ship it to China, we've got something they want. We have, mm. we have canola. We have, um, you know, pork products. I mean, China is, you know, just for the Chinese government to feed all of those people every day. They need energy and they need food. And what has Canada got? Energy and food. If Fascinating, yeah. Huh? Fascinating. No, it's fascinating. We got to go. It's fascinating, though, that the points you make that the areas where we do have power are areas where we are struggling to decide whether we want to use that power. And it, you know, we, we could be flexing our muscles a lot more. Uh, Stephen LaDrew, listen, it's been too long. Glad to have you back. We'll do this again soon. Thanks for the I look time. Forward to that. Great chatting, Scott. Cheers. Uh, yeah, think about that for a second. I mean, look, I understand that you may be an environmentalist. I understand that you may be against pipelines and all the rest. But the one thing that could give us international ability to flex our muscles a little bit is one thing that we are deciding we don't want to take advantage of. Well, if that's the case, do we have a right to then complain that we don't have any power? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let us bring in our good friend Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, who just got off the air after doing his sports cast. Sir, how are you today? Well, I guess we're trying to figure out now. You know, if everyone's all enthusiastic about baseball, but where are the Blue Jays going to play? Where are they going to well, have spring training? Right? Like, there, yeah. there are a million questions. I want to get to that because we got a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about baseball in a second. First, though, I do have I, I'm I am scratching my head as I always do with the Hall of Fame, especially the Hockey Hall of Fame. They had the announcement today. The people who went in um, today, uh, Jerome McGinley, I don't think there was any question he was going to go in. First ballot guy, he's in. Marion Hosa, maybe a little more of a question, but once again, a first ballot guy. Kevin Lowe, Doug Wilson, Kim St. Pierre, and Ken Holland in the builders category. Yeah. All right, we're not going to talk about Kim St. Pierre. Uh, I, You know, she was a, a great female player. Uh, they are inducting female players now. And That's so, great uh, you know. Greatest, greatest goaltender in female in female hockey. In, 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 uh, in, in her time, for sure. So there's no, I, like, I'm not going to quibble with that one, and I'm not going to quibble with the Ginla. I'm not going to quibble with Hosa. And I'm not even quibbling so much, Bubba, with the idea of Kevin Lowe or Doug Wilson going in. Doug Wilson has been eligible eligible to go into the Hockey Hall of Fame since 1996, and he went in. He's the GM of the uh, uh, San Jose Sharks, and has been a very successful general manager. Mm-hmm. He's not in as a builder; he's in as a player. What has Doug Wilson done in the last 24 years to enhance his player credentials that suddenly makes him a Hall of Famer? Well, I think you have to. Put, you, you can't. You can't separate Lowe and Wilson because they come as a in, in a. Even though they play for different teams, obviously, they come in in a in I think the same 
um, spirit of, of being finally yep. put into the Hall of Fame because both of them were outstanding players, dominant players at their time. Doug Wilson is a is a Norris Trophy winning defenseman. Uh, had at one time during his days in the Blackhawks was the most feared slap shot from that point that uh, you know used to make that old stadium in Chicago go wild. Um, and he was w- one of the, I think if you look at his statistics, he was one of the early offensive-minded defensemen of that era, going dating back into the 70s. Now, uh, if I remember correctly, Lowe and Wilson are only really separated by a year in terms of their playing careers. Both played nearly 20 years. So I think you have to look at both of them as guys that were right on the borderline, but for whatever reason, as years have gone along, there are guys that probably were just a wee bit better than them. And I think we see this in baseball, where guys are just near that, you know, I think it's 75% in baseball, that, you, you know, you're, 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 you're a really, really good player, but for as each year goes along, there was someone that was just a little bit better than you. So, um, and you know what, and I think we even experienced that, you know, and I think unrightfully so, uh, with Dave Anderchuk. Uh, as each year went on, the guys that were going in were just a little bit better than him for, you know, for, you know, and remember, this is a voting thing too. So each person has their own excuse. I would, you know, look, I was, I was a huge supporter of Dave Anderchuk getting in and I thought that the numbers and everything else all along, it was insane that he wasn't getting in. And because we don't know how the Hockey Hall of Fame votes on stuff, because everything is secret, we don't know if he had never had his name brought up or if he was close and didn't get enough votes or whatever. I just don't, like, I would have voted in Doug Wilson when he retired because he was, he was one of the great defensemen of his era. I don't understand I guess my point is I don't understand the thinking here. You're, you're, if you're a Hall of Famer, you're a Hall of Famer. And I almost think now that I would love to see the Hockey Hall of Fame change something it's doing and simply say this. When you retire, you've got your three-year or five-year waiting. Is it three or five in hockey? It's five in baseball. I can't remember what it is now. I think it's three in hockey. Anyway, you've got your waiting period, and we're going to vote for you. And if we determine that you're a Hall of Famer, you go in that year. And then if you're not, you don't go in. And let's, and we can put in more than three or four, whatever it is. But that's, but the, if you're, you just said it there, yeah, sorry to stop you there, Scott. That's the difference right there in baseball, as opposed to, you know, basketball, the, the Naismith hall of fame, where it's an eye football is the same thing. It's unlimited hockey ever since, especially Lanny McDonald came in there. And I think that was one of the things he came in there with that. There is an attitude or just a belief. It's a silent. I don't think there's a rule but it's a silent sort of rule within the Hall of Fame that they're ne- that they're never going more than five players and one builder. That's the maximum. So yeah, that's well, that's the max you're allowed: four men and one woman, yeah, players well, and one builder. Five players and one builder. So, so in essence, that's why this happens with guys like Lowe and Wilson. Because, like I was saying. As each year goes on, you're like, okay, this guy's a definitely he's Hall of Fame eligible for sure. But for whatever reason, there was someone just a wee bit better than them that might have got two or three votes more than you know these individuals that we're talking today. So when you limit, I mean, and and uh, to to their credit, in some ways, one of the criticisms of the Golf Hall of Fame and one of the criticisms of the Basketball Hall of Fame is like, oh my goodness, how many people are in there? It's just it does, it loses its exclusivity, right? So depending on what side of the fence you're on, you're going to get this result every year because someone's going in next year that you're going to go, how did you know like. 
hey, I, I, you know, I know you, I think, eh, is it you that you're not, you, you don't like the Ottawa Senators? I'm not a big fan. Yeah, well, I think Daniel <laughs> Alferson is a Hall of Fame player, right? But he's going to have to wait. Yeah, I and and I, I I'm like I'm surprised in a sense that he didn't get in again, and like I, yeah, I'm not a, my dislike of the Ottawa Senators stems almost exclusively from the fact that that franchise should be in Hamilton right now, but for some <laughs> shenanigans that happened to steal it away. So it's you know, but that doesn't mean that I can't look at Daniel Alfredson and say, yeah, the guy was a great player in his time and should get consideration for sure. But again, if you're a Hall of Famer. And you, if you were a Hall of Famer when you played, I don't know why you're waiting. I mean, I, I don't. And and because Daniel Alfredson, year. if but if you were a Hall of Famer, I know you're saying right now, okay, we've got the full roster right now. We got again Lahosa, Lowe, and Wilson, so there's no space for Alfredson. That's fine. But he should have then been in before this because he's had what four now, five years of eligibility. Yeah, but you um, could be, but again, because of the way they're doing it, it's going to build up a delay of players, Scott. And I think that's why we we're 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 discussing this is because of that policy that they've yeah. sort of seek, they've kind of put in within each other as as the voting class of of uh, sports writers and and hockey insiders. Every year, as each year goes along, there's going to be this buildup, this sort of um, room of purgatory for guys that are. And as time goes on. All of a sudden, you've gone from, you know, hey, this guy was, has been eligible for 10 years. Well, he's been waiting 10 years because they've been trying to clear the pack for 10 years of guys that should have been in to the, to the way you like it. So as long as you keep limiting the amount that you want to put in, this is inevitable. It's going to happen. Although one thing you could do to somewhat mitigate this is to do what the Hall of Fame doesn't do, the Hockey Hall of Fame, and say, here's who we voted on. Here are the names that we voted on. And so you want we had transparency. A- well, I don't even necessarily need you to tell me how many votes people got. Here's who were the people who were in consideration this year. We don't even know that for sure. We don't know, Bubba, that Daniel Alfredson's name even came up in the discussion today. We don't know if Theo Fleury's name came up in the discussion today. He might have, and they might have come one vote short. But I'd at least like to know, here's who we discussed, and we just couldn't get him in this year or something, as opposed to the guy's been completely forgotten. We don't know if some of these guys are being left off because the, the voters, nobody raises them because they hate them personally. Well, we don't know. The, therein lies the problem. And that's why, even though baseball is not my favorite sport, the Baseball Hall of Fame have it right, right? Yep, we, I agree. We know we, that we're right there every year. We watch, we watch for the better, better part of a decade. We watch Larry Walker creep, 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 creep up that list until the, his final year and he gets in this year. Right, and and whether you're pulling for the guy or not, at least you got an idea um, of who voted for him, who didn't vote for him, um, and if he's made progress or if he's slipping. And that goes for Barry Bonds and Roger Clements as well with their issues, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and as arguably the greatest players in their position. Uh, but we we there's accountability, and I know that's you know that's one of my favorite words. Uh, that that's something we get to track, and the voters. Uh, are put on the line for that. But for whatever reason, and, you know, hockey's a kind of an interesting sport with the way they kind of do things differently. They like to do it their own way, and that's okay. Um, they believe it's a, 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 more of a, a secret ballot kind of thing. Well, you mentioned baseball. Let's switch over to baseball for a minute. A couple stories today. One is that um, apparently there's some positive COVID tests among members of the Blue Jays. So now... Uh, because there are spring training facilities in Florida now, they're trying to get back to Toronto to have spring training here. 
problem with that is we know the border isn't open and so if you have spring training here and then season games here do players have to take a 14-day quarantine before they i mean it's just a giant mess but the other thing that is going on is that the players the other day agreed and the baseball agreed to a 60 game season but there's a bunch of rules that are being thrown around as possibilities and i want to get your thoughts on some of these Starting with this one, that extra inning games, because they want to, I guess, speed things up and don't have these long games. Extra inning games. When we go to extra innings, every extra inning will start with a runner on second base. So a single now brings in a run, and we can maybe move these things along. You like that idea or no? I can't stand it, but I under, I think for a one year, for this one year, because everything is so incredibly special, and the fact that this the sixty game schedule for all teams is over a span of seventy days. That's tight, you know, and you include travel. And I know they've minimized travel by keeping the teams that you play in your own division and your corresponding division in the other conference. In the other in the other conference, but I'm telling you, they have to find. You cannot have 18 inning games uh, or the uncertainty of games. And I know with that, the Olympic uh, Olympics have proven it that games are over real quick. And I know you've even I don't know if they're doing that in in uh, youth baseball. But games are finished. It's like it's kind of like going to three on three. Games are over pretty quick. They sure can be because now you don't. I mean, you get a guy on second. All you need, you get three guys. Just get one single or or two long fly balls, and and you can sacrifice them in, and you take a lead. Um, I, I hate the idea because I think it, it it it's a it's a gimmick and it's ridiculous. Yep, it, it, um, it, it totally is. Uh, games ending in ties is something that they are throwing out there, which is like antithetical to ever has been in the place of in baseball forever there i don't there's been that i can remember other than spring training there's been one tie and that was the all-star game that ended up getting yeah. bud Selig in a world of hurt I, <laughs> ties in baseball seems ridiculous no no you, you and that's why i think the your next best option is to put a man at second base because games have to be completed. Uh, the, the, the season is just too tight. There's too much on the line. Well, you know, what if you're you're coming in from, uh, you know, you're coming in from Washington and you got a flight and you got to get out uh, the next day. It's the end of your three day trip here in Toronto or whatever the case is. I mean, it's just you've got to get these games over as quickly as possible. And that just goes to show you the desperation of the owners and the players, and at least more the owners. I mean, they were pitching 50 games, Scott. 50. Yeah, which already 60, I think, changes how you play because baseball is not designed to be played in a short burst like this. It's meant to be a long season. Here's the other one, though. So those two, I hate. Those two, I think, are ridiculous. But it doesn't even come close to my spite and hatred and venomous disgust at the, which is probably too strong. But anyway, at the next one they're throwing out there, which is player reentry rules. So if a player is taken out of the game in baseball right now, if you leave the game for any reason, you're done. They're talking about making rules that would allow a player to re-enter the game. This, to me, again, this is this is about changing more than just hurrying things up. This changes the entire DNA of baseball if that happens. I mean... The the only thing is I don't understand it. Like what I mean again, you said baseball has been played forever that way. I mean soccer, same thing. Once you come off, you're done, right? Yep. And that's what the, that's in, and that's your substitution, right? And 
I think if anything, you know, you're trying to make these games move as quickly as possible. I think you would want to limit the amount of pitching changes and substitutions you could make to, 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 to pretty much to, to, to speed up the entire process. Um, I just don't know. I don't know what the what the what the advantage is is for that. Like, so is it so a guy can have a rest and then you put him back in in the seventh and eighth? Or I I, I don't know. I think any player, for the most part, regardless of the sport, would like to be involved from beginning to end to continue their that 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 groove or whatever the case is. They would like to be maintained in that same sort of realm. I don't think going off like you would in hockey and then going back in virtually serves, solves anything. Well, I mean, a huge part of the intrigue of baseball, I love the game itself, but I also love the thinking behind it and the strategy behind it, which I think a lot of people do. And so you end up in this situation now, you've got a pitcher who, you know, especially in the National League, although they're talking about DH as well for both leagues, but in the National League, you've got a pitcher coming up, but you've also, and he's, but he's going up to bat, but he, and you need to drive in a run, but he's having a great game. What do you do? Well, now, if you put this new rule in, well, of course, we take the pitcher out, we put in a pinch hitter, and hey, look, our pitcher can come back in. Changes so much of the thinking and the strategy and the risk and everything behind the game, and, and frankly, dumbs it down. I mean, it really dumbs it down if you do this. Yeah, I again, I, I don't see why that's an element of the game they would ever try to change because I think I understand speeding up the game. I, I, all of these things I understand based on, on it being a one-season sort of thing, but I don't understand that, that, that rule. I mean, you're, you're essentially changing baseball by doing yes. that. Think right? of all the different ways that the game is that the strategy plays out based on a player's skills or abilities or whatever. You've got a, a big guy who can hit for power, but he can't run worth a lick. Uh, he, you know, he's just terribly slow on the bases and clogs up the base paths. Well, now you would say, okay, we can walk that guy, put him on first base and set up a double play perhaps. Well, now you say, well, we can take, okay, go ahead, walk him. Now we can take him out of the game, put in a super fast, speedy pinch runner, and then put the guy right back in again. And that's just one example. And I gave the pitching example. There's so many ways this has impact, defensive positioning and everything else. I, I don't even I don't even get the the thought behind it from those who are proposing this. It yeah. just seems like, you know, let's go. I, it, it's almost like some of the guys in baseball went and had a giant bender and wrote down on the back of a napkin in the bar the stupidest ideas they could come up with and said, okay, let's go with this. I mean, I'm all for brainstorming and trying different things out. I, 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 I am, I, and I think that's okay, and I think that's a healthy thing. Um, but I, for me, I just, again, there are certain ones. I mean, this is as silly to me as um, making the net two feet bigger in hockey, right? Uh-huh. Again, you know, like, again, like let's, let's be serious here. But so. the but brainstorming is great. I agree with you. I love the idea of sitting down and brainstorming and coming up with ideas. But more often than not, Bubba, when you do your brainstorming, it doesn't mean every drunken idea we came up with, we now have to present as a real idea to management. Mm-hmm. Right? So someone says, you know what? We're, all the CHCH people go out for a thing. That, you know what we need? 12 anchor people doing the newscast. Well, when you sober up and you go, okay, wait a second, that's not that great an idea. So let's just dump that one. That was stupid. It doesn't mean because you had the thought, you have to share the thought. Yeah. I, I, I can't argue with you there. I mean, I, I, I get it. 
Poor Taz, well, if they ever did that. Taz would lose her mind if they had 11 other anchor people competing for airtime with her and nudging her to get their stories on. T- Taz loses her mind for a lot of things. <laughs> I, <laughs> you didn't, I didn't say that. <laughs> It's, uh, I don't love the, I, I mean, I just, there are some things that baseball could do. I, I actually am in favor in some ways of getting rid of the pitchers hitting in what the national league. Way? What do you mean in some way? Well, I'm torn on this one. Cause I do like the strategy of it, oh, no, but at the same what? time, don't I don't like watching a pitcher just strike out or bunt every time. There you go. You just answered your own question. That, that's, no, that's ridiculous. I'm, watching yeah, pitchers I'm go up there and, and do nothing is, I mean, and basically when pitchers in the national league, uh, you know, and go in there and renegotiate their contract. You know, it's like uh, one tenth of their strikeout totals are 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 bullcrap strikeouts, right? Like, and, and what's it? Uh, Felipe Alou said the same thing. He's been famously quoted for saying this. You know, about the strategy in the National League. He's like, and I think his line was, "Strategy? What strategy?" And that's coming from a National League manager for many years. It's 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 a crock. It's it, it's nothing. It's come on. This is a, this is entertainment. We need people to hit the ball. We don't need to see pitchers strike out. It's the only ridiculous. reason, as I say, the only reason that I still like the pitchers hitting is not because they're ever going to hit, but the strategic decisions and the managers involved. And do we leave a guy in who's cruising along, but we've got a guy on third and have to drive him in, or do we not? Those kind of decisions, which I think you lose. But yeah, it, it, it otherwise. Um, Watching most pitchers hit is a little bit like watching a, I don't know, a guy do surgery, a, a appendix removal surgery with oven mitts on. Like it's so, just, it's so, not. So, so why have it? For the most part, I agree. No, I, I do. I, and, and that's why I'm torn. It's one that I could sort of go back and forth on, but generally against, but anyway, get rid of it, we'll dude. see what they do. We'll see what get they do. And we'll like, see you if. Know what? Years and years ago in, in the, you know, in the early days when pitchers were coming up through the ranks and they hit, I, I get it. Right. But once you become a major league baseball player, once you sign that contract, once you're drafted and you get into the, you know, the A, double A, triple, you, I mean, you spend no time hitting. So once they lose that, those skills as of standing in the, in the box, uh, it just doesn't make sense. And you know what, quite honestly, too, why would you want your pitcher standing there with a 90-mile-an-hour fastball coming at you? Good point. Good point. Oh, oh, well, you know what, I'm way over time, but I will say that is one thing that I do like. That's one thing I do like about pitcher sitting because if you decide, as we've seen in baseball at times, where you're going to drill one of the players on the other team, I do like the idea that you have to get in. In fact, my argument for pitchers hitting is that pitchers shouldn't hit as a rule. But if you hit the other team's batter, you have to bat in the next half inning. <laughs> I See, that I'm in favor of. Yeah. How many of those games with the Royals a couple of years ago when, uh, well, I can't remember the guy's name on the Royals, Idiot Boy was uh, claimed that he suddenly couldn't control any of his pitches and was oh, plunking Vol- Blue Jays up. Volquez? Yeah, yeah. Now, you tell me that he's going to do that if he knows he has to go up to bat next inning. Not a chance. Not a chance. And I, and if I'm the Blue Jays, I just find some guy. If I know the Royals are coming to town and that guy's going to do that, I go find some guy in the minors who can't throw worth a lick except that he throws at 110 miles an hour and you say, uh, you know what, you're never pitching here again. Drill him as hard as you can. Wow. And just the... and and and. 
look, that's the only reason I would say pitchers hit because it will take that stupidity out of the game. Yeah, well, hitting hitting people with with a baseball is is, is shouldn't be part of the game anyway. That, you know, we, we talk about fighting and hockey. I no, I've, I'm I'm I. There is a time and a place and a way, but it's a cowardly way if you never have to be the guy to go up and pay the penalty. And so, if you want to drill someone, that's fine. But you know that you're going to be up there standing in the box ready to get plunked yourself. So if you're brave enough to take that chance, okay. But in the American League, you never have to be that brave. And so to me, it, it reduces the, the thing to a point of idiocy. Anyway, we got to run. Way late. Appreciate right. you doing this. Thank you as always. All right, brother. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.